I think there are secrets beneath our feet. And I don't believe that the whole earth is hollow, but I do believe that there may be great openings and great secrets underneath there that we don't fully understand. That's why when we, we when we learn about the ancients, they sought underground to survive these cataclysms like Derinkuyu in Turkey, the greatest underground city in the world. Just because we only know about that one doesn't mean that there's not many others that the, the entrances are being hidden or are no longer around anymore. Um, I definitely don't think that these entities or beings that are part of our reality are just gone, gone, and there's nothing left. It seems like their role here has just changed. I guess that's the answer that I would give here is that their role has changed. And I something that I bring up a lot that I think is smoking gun evidence behind this is in the Epic of Gilgamesh which is a Mesopotamian cuneiform tablet that was found along many others like the Enuma Elish in the Ashurbanipal library. Because in the Epic of Gilgamesh, what's so important is that Gil Gilgamesh is seeking immortality from Untapishti, which is Atrahasis, the flood hero, part of a great bloodline. And he goes to Atrahasis, who was called into Untapishti in the Epic of Gilgamesh. He goes, he wants to understand the secrets of the universe and the secrets of immortal immortality. And so what he does is he asks him about the past and about how he's found immortality and, and Untapishti tells him that he was once in a great, an ancient city called Shirupak long before the flood. And in that city, the gods once were there in physical form and walked among them and interacted with the high priests and, the, and those who were, who were leaders of those societies. And then he says very clearly that because of the events that were, that happened during the last um, the Younger Dryas period, I believe, 12,000 years ago, roughly, that those entities, beings that we call the Anunnaki gods that are written all throughout Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. I once did, I, really quickly, for those who are curious, I once did a um, little bit of a homework assignment where I went into cuneiform tablets and I went to every single one that mentioned the Anunnaki specifically by name, whether or not it's Anuna or Anunnaki, both, both variations are used. And I think I came up with like 32 different tablets that extensively name them and talk about them. And it's not like just like that they're talked about as archetypes. There's very specific conversations between them, morality decisions and issues they're having with human societies and domains that they rule over. And they're talking in great detail about how they want to structure those societies and how they want their legacy to be kept behind. And so, but like I said, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, he says that because of the events that were, that were going on here during the del deluge with massive amounts of the planet being destroyed and wiped out and pop people dying and disappearing into great cataclysms, they left. They left here, and what they left behind are is is this rulership that was controlled from probably what I would consider higher dimensions through things like um, black magic and using certain types of rituals to contact them. What do you think, Billy? Yeah, I, I'm that's, that's so great, Matt. Um, there is me no way that these Anunnaki beings have stopped engaging mankind. Uh, directly. I know that a lot of them fled during the end of that last pyramid war, which we see a lot of evidence of in Mohenjo-Daro in the Indus Valley. We see evidence in the sands of Giza. We see evidence really in this swath of area that's, you know, kind of really wraps around that, that region where you can see it was decimated by some type of a war, some type of weapon, which is why you can find a lot of vitrified sand there, which is turned to glass. Um, and I think that um, they... Some of them ones who did stay 
went kind of more uh, covertly and allowed their, their bloodline, their offsprings. And the evidence that to me can literally be seen as you begin to recognize the ruling elite on this planet right now today and do some simple genealogy background searches you can link. And it's not just me. It's been now hundreds of genealogists doing this. You can link a lot of the leaders together in terms of a bloodline that can be traced all the way back. Uh, so what's really amazing is when you start analyzing this bloodline, you realize that if you follow the migration of the pharaonic bloodline across Arabia into Europe, uh, and then you've discovered the reestablishing of the monarchy there or the establishing of the monarchy and how those bloodlines then work their way through kingship and then eventually into the United States presidency. It's absolutely stunning. So you realize that this bloodline that was ruling and dominating over mankind in super antiquity still has uh, uh, an appreciable effect on our uh, lives right now, our, our being in the civil, civilians of the planet, the civilization here, the 7.7 billion people now, are still pretty much being controlled almost by this same very small family bloodline, which can be traced back from the current day president, Donald Trump, who is related directly uh, all the way back to uh, the very first president uh, of the United States. But there's only one president, Van Buren, who wasn't directly related, however, was still of royal bloodline out of Europe. Uh, that particular election, maybe they didn't have the right person. Maybe they didn't have anybody who was responsible enough. Who knows? But to have all of these presidents, with the exception of one, directly related back to John Lapton, which can then be traced back to Arabian kings and, and, then, and then eventually to pharaohs and, and further back even to Iraq. It's just mind blowing that this information is available to the general population of the world. And people still run to the voting box every four years. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I don't know if people know, but there are different versions of cuneiform tablets for the same story. Mm -hmm. I want to repeat that. There are different versions of the same story based on where they came from. Why is that the case? That's not to try to imply that the information within them is not accurate. There's a reason for that. The reason for that is in ancient Mesopotamia, where cuneiform tablets were recorded, you had two, at least two regions that were constantly fighting. And that is the Babylon area with up, up in Assyria for the, the god Ashur. So Ashur was the equivalent of in Akkadian of Enlil. And you found in the city up there where they happens to be where the Ashurbanipal library was created is a city called Nineveh. That area was ruled by the god Ashur, who was known as Enlil in, um, in Sumerian. Now, further to the south, Babylon was a rising empire whose god was not Ashur. It was Bel or Marduk. There was, and that's why there was such a competition between them because they, they hated each other. And there was potentially later a, a collaboration, a hasty collaboration that was done. But either way, during that time period, basically Marduk, Bel, wanted to which the name, actually the name Babylon comes from Marduk, believe it or not, his, the different versions of his name. He was the god of Babylon. He was, he was a war city, whereas Nineveh was created more uh, as an ancient library and a recording area for these, this information. So what happened? Well, when Ashurbanipal died, Babylon invaded Nineveh and destroyed everything. And the only reason why the Ashurbanipal Library survived is because they hid tablets down inside these compartments under, with, within the ground because this library was built down below. And they, 
basically the, they burned the whole city down and all fell on top of it. And the cuneiform tablets survived buried under layers of soil until uh, Austin Henry Layard came along in 1849 and uncovered them. But the point I'm trying to make is there's two different versions of the, of the Babylonian epic and the Assyrian epic of the Enuma Elish. So why does that matter? Well, in the Babylonian version of the Enuma Elish, Marduk takes credit for the creation of mankind, whereas in the Akkadian version, Enki takes credit for the creation of mankind. We all know that Enki was the one who created mankind primarily. Bel, he may have played a role in it, but he wasn't the creator of mankind, but he claims he is in the Babylonian version. Why? Because he was competing to be the primary god of our world. And so what happened is, he was a jealous god. He was Enki's firstborn son. And so he came along and tried to pretend like he was the god who created mankind. Doesn't it make all the sense if you think about it? Whereas he was the god of Babylon. And it just so happens that the Enuma Elish version that came out of Babylon has that information changed in that tablet from because his, his influences. Now, I want to say one last thing that might help connect people. Look at the modern, the old and the New Testament today. How many reversions have been done? How many revisions have been done in that? And things altered and changed around. That's the great challenge that emerged, is that this information became so clouded and so poisoned with individual interests that a lot of this ancient writing was then taken and turned into more um, current religious stories, and the, the waters got muddy. Go with the Assyrian versions because it seemed like there was a little more respect with um, with the ancient stories and keeping them intact. Add a little something what, to what to verify what what he was saying in reference to uh, these civilizations going at each other, you know, neck to neck and modifying stories. If you look at the Inuni Elish and the Seven Tablets of Creation, if you look at the older version of it, you discover that Nibiru was the planet that destroyed Tiamat. If you look at a more recent version, it's still ancient, though, you realize that Marduk, who's also mentioned in the modern day Bible and also in the Torah, he changed the name Nibiru to Marduk because he wanted to be the destroyer. So they have these these people had a lot of big egos, you know. So but Matt, you're, you're 100 percent accurate on that. Uh, it was a fantastic answer. All right. Thank you, Billy. After analyzing the composition of obelisks, which I've done extensively, they're magnetized granite crystal uh, obelisks. They're towers made of granite crystal, and um, they resonate at a specific frequency. Now, when you look at the pyramids in the regions or the areas where they are, and some may have been in regions or areas where there may have not been pyramids, but other types of similar technology. In other words, the ability to create physiostatic electricity and extract it from an aquifer. The Great Pyramid at Giza, for example, is built over an aquifer, just like the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan is built over an aquifer. And the moving water underneath the pyramid, in combination with the crystal granite structure that would be considered to be right above the base of the pyramid, pulls these ions out of this flowing water up into the structure, creating this physiostatic electricity, which then, when the pyramid had all this correct technology on the inside, it would resonate up the Grand Gallery into the King's Chamber and then broadcast itself through the apex and become this wireless electricity that can then be picked up by these uh, obelisks and carried from obelisk to obelisk, sort of like a uh, modern-day electric poles without the wires. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is with this type of technology, not only could you transmit uh, electricity, but you can also transmit images and sound which could account for some of the uh, records and accounts that you hear 
from Egypt where it's talking stones and the gods talking to people through rocks and so forth. These were most likely crystals and the frequencies were vibrating at a specific, uh, just like a crystal receiver of radio, specific frequency that was able to be received by these particular devices. And then people would think that God was talking to them through these particular rocks and so forth. But I really do think it was just obelisk and pyramid technology. That was spot on in my opinion. Well said, Billy. I, I agree 100% with what he said there. The, these, these, I guess you could equate these, in my opinion, these obelisks to like a some kind of a wireless antenna, some kind of a – like when you look up in the sky and you see these, these big antennas for cell phones or something. This is on the line, the type of example like that where these pyramid structures seem to be transmitting some kind of electromagnetic energy or a balance. A connected system of obelisks and pyramids, let's say for argument's sake, on both the Mars and, and Earth that were – they were designed in such a way where they would be in harmony with each other. And you had obelisks transmitting those, that, those types of energies and signals between each other. You would have basically a connected world between with energy. And there's, there's probably countless different things you could do with something like that. Perhaps everything on the spectrum from controlling the electromagnetic grid of a planet all the way to maybe extending one's lifespan and raising their vibrational frequency in a certain harmonic way where you can both connect to higher dimensions of wisdom and maybe even extend your lifespan. I think the possibilities are endless. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you, Billy. I really enjoyed our conversation.